All right. Why don't we open in prayer, and then I threw it out in the chat after we discussed it. After last week, a few people had asked about the um, possibility of maybe discussing what we're going through as a sermon series right now, which I'm totally happy to do if there's discussion on that. And if not, then we'll just jump into our discussion from the confession, so no pressure whatsoever, but if there is questions then or discussion, we can gladly pick that up. So why don't we open in prayer, and then we will take it from there. Do we have someone that is willing to open in prayer? Keith. Amen. All right, so we'll throw it out for any discussion. Like I say, probably two or three people did end up mentioning last week that it would be nice to have some discussion time afterward. And so if there's stuff brewing on your mind, let's gladly discuss it. And if not, like I say, we won't belabor it. We'll move into our confession. So, discussion on biblical masculinity and femininity. And I will grant, to break the ice a little bit, I will grant that there was many unapproved thoughts that came through. And I think we need to get better as Christians at thinking unapproved thoughts because we are certainly cutting against the surrounding prevailing views of the day in a lot of different areas. And we can't just work at this at the area of symptoms. Just treating symptoms isn't going to fix the issue. We've got to get to the root of the matter. And that's what we are attempting to look at as we go through this series. Jeremy. Should he have been? Yes. Yes, he should have been the original head crusher. And there's actually an interesting, an interesting thing. When, uh, when Cain is born, his name means, uh, I received a man from God. Right? So after the curse is given in Genesis 3, Eve is promised a head crushing man. And I think our first parents thought, that that was Cain, was their Messiah. They name him accordingly, um, and it seems like there's great disappointment that he's not the Messiah, because Abel means futility. I think they'd given up. Um, So there is an expectation, like people often do, right? Um, People often try to collapse all prophetic utterances into their age, (laughs) into their time, Uh, and I think our first parents were no different. I think Adam and Eve figured, oh, you know, that was a long nine months waiting for this prophecy to unfold. <laughs> Fine, I can't, we endured it. We did it, guys. We, we played the long game. Nine months later, we have a man from God. We have this head-crushing man, and it's clearly not him. So they, they had to wait for several thousand more years. But the, the point of the garden and the serpent 
is an interesting one. So Adam should have been the head crusher, but you're also asking, if I'm understanding right, why was there a serpent there? Possibly. There's a theory in the early church, and I'm not sure, I think there's some credence to it. I'm not sure I'd say I hold that position or I reject it. I haven't done enough work to say. But there is a theory among some of the fathers that the snake fell at the same time as the parents did. That was the fall of Satan, that everyone fell at the same time. Satan fell and humanity fell all in the same action. Because the serpent himself, by making that offer, was grabbing authority that he didn't have. So that was the moment of his fall. The other view, of course, is that he was already fallen long before that, and he just shows up um, in fallen form. But, like I say, I, I haven't done enough work to say anything really beyond that, other than those views are out there. Caleb? That the serpent would have fallen or that humanity would have fallen? That Satan would have fallen? Well, yeah, probably, because even, even had our parents passed the probation, the serpent is still offering something that he has no authority to offer. So, yeah, that's probably a fair comment, that the serpent has fallen either way at this point. There's no possibility of him not falling, whereas our parents still were in a period of probation there for a moment. That is possible. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Wow, there's a great pastoral question. Did everyone hear Inga's question? Men, okay, so I said in the sermon, and I stand by it, men inevitably lead. There is no way out of male headship. It's just a fact of creation. Men inescapably lead, zero exceptions. Inga's question, so if men are leading poorly, how do we honor them? How do we honor a father who's not leading well? How does a wife honor a husband who is not leading well? And that is sadly a a reality that many people face. Um, And I'm not sure there's a cookie-cutter answer because poor leadership looks differently in different places. So I'm not sure there's a cookie-cutter answer. Um, But I think, let's say for a, a woman, start with... Well, let's start with parents because that's our first relationship. It comes as parents. Is we obey in the Lord, okay? So no authority is absolute. God has made spheres of authority, and sometimes they overlap, okay? So a father is leading in his home. Uh, the, the state leads in civics. Uh, church elders lead in that sphere. A chamber of commerce might lead in the commercial sphere. A guild of artists or welders or whatever might lead, right? There's, there's all these spheres all over. Uh, and sometimes they overlap, let's say, like child abuse, okay? If, if there's abuse of a child, the father's the head, the church elders need to be involved, and at a certain point, the civil authorities need to be 
involved, right? So there's overlapping authority. And that's where these things get very difficult. And frankly, that's why we need church fathers and city fathers to work through the complexity of those situations because there isn't a cookie-cutter answer. Problems arise when any one authority makes itself absolute. So if a father's way of leading his family is when the kids ask, hey, Daddy, why do we do it this way? And Dad says, because I'm the dad, and I said so. He is squandering an incredible opportunity to teach and to lead. Okay? He is making sure all respect runs fast from him. He could explain, here's why we do this. And if your daughter's question stumps you, maybe you need to figure out, maybe we're not doing this right. If I don't have a good answer for my seven-year-old, why we're doing it this way, maybe we should do it differently. But uh, usually abusive situations happen or poor leading happens when people claim more authority than God has given them. So a husband's authority and a father's authority is never, ever absolute. If, if a husband commands his wife to you know, commit degrading sex acts, she can say no. That, right? uh, take part in my, you know, my bank robbery syndicate she has perfect authority to say no because her following and a child's following her father is in the Lord. So if God says no, a child is not obligated to obey. We're obligated to honor, right? And in the younger years, honoring your parents looks more or less like obedience. Uh, At my age, I think honoring my parents doesn't look like obedience. My dad has ordered me to do several things in my 30s and 40s that... No, no, I'm sorry, no. Um, but even that can be done respectfully. There's a thing in the military called you salute the uniform, okay? Your commanding officer is not a respectable human being, okay? Your prime minister or your father is a contemptible man, but you salute the uniform, you salute the office, okay? Even if the man in the office is disreputable, there, so you, you still find ways to honor even when you say no. You can be respectful. Um, but your no can still be no. No, Dad. I, okay? um, and unfortunately, some of us have grown up in the settings where we had to learn to say no to Dad at a young age, and I include myself in that. I've, I had to learn how to say no to my dad early on, and it's painful because it's not how it should be. But... Some of us find ourselves in those situations. And and the same for a wife to her husband. Salute the uniform. Salute the office. And find creative ways. And women tend to be quite resourceful and good at this. The the word picture is there of this dance in a husband-wife relationship with gender roles is, this is before my time, so maybe people will catch the reference. There used to be a dancing uh, pair ballroom dancing, Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. Okay? I don't know if anyone's heard those names. But uh, the incredible thing is that as good as Fred Astaire was, everything he did, she did backwards and in high heels. Okay? Women are resourceful, and women uh, have a perception about human behavior that men often are missing. And so it's a dance to get your husband to lead well without visibly trying to get him to lead well, <laughs> right? If, you, if, you, if it's too on the nose, he's just going to say, nope, I may be a failed leader, but I'm enough of a man, I'm not going to be led by a woman. 
So she can't just say, you need to start leading better. He's going to pull away. She needs to find ways to honor him in the most minor things if he's just performing the bare minimum. Find ways to praise him. And that tends to encourage a man to take more on his shoulders than reminders. But I... That's all very general and vague. I mean, really, in actual situations, it gets very complex. And, and that's why you need people around you to s- sort through the wisdom of any particular situation. Because there's more than one way to lead poorly. And I, I don't know if I'm getting to it at all, or if that's not what you're asking. And, okay, so if you're talking about a married woman, that's an interesting point because, and I'm going to talk about this a little bit in this sermon today, our symbols and our customs are very powerful. Traditionally, what happens at a wedding? And if you're not married, I would strongly encourage you to maintain this tradition. Who gives this woman to this man? We've castrated that and said, her mother and I do. But what we should say is, I do. I am giving my little girl to a man, and I'm trusting you to take care of my little girl. You better, okay? Her name is changing because of you. She has my name because I'm her father. Now she's going to have your name because you're going to be her husband. There's a transfer of headship that legitimately happens at a wedding, okay? And that custom, who gives this woman to this man, is an important question because it's symbolizing something cosmic, something real. And a woman taking her husband's name is equally important uh, in, in that transference of things. So, once you're a married woman, husband certainly takes priority over dad. And lots of marriage problems happen when either spouse refuses to let go of mom and dad. Okay? I've known several farmers who have stayed on the farmyard with their mother, and the wife and the mother compete for this boy's attention. And that's a woolly situation. Yeah, he'd always go have coffee with mom after chores, and then he'd come to the house and have family breakfast. If you're a man, you can kind of understand both of those things. <laughs> I need to spend time with my widowed mother. Also, I have my own family now that needs me. So these, these are tricky things. Anything else on this? When children are two, maybe. Yeah. There's um, a, a great parenting book. I recommend it to everyone. As a church, we've given it away to our new parents called Shepherding a Child's Heart. And, and this is looking at it from a, a parenting standpoint. How as a child grows, what happens naturally, what should happen naturally, is that the parent's authority goes down and down and down, and their influence (laughs) keeps moving up and up, right? And typically we get this backwards because little kids who are frankly vile sinners look cute when they're sleeping, 
Okay, so we treat their five-year-old sin like it's cute instead of wicked. And then all of a sudden when they're 18 and they're not putting crayon on the walls, but they're spray painting cars, well, now it's not so cute. And they don't look cute when they're sleeping anymore. So now parents scramble to grab at that authority when that window has closed. The time to exercise authority to teach kids swiftly when they're 18 months old, you disobeyed, instant connection. Sin hurts. It's instant. You don't try to reason with a one-year-old. And nothing looks more pathetic than, than parents trying to reason with little Johnny. Johnny needs a spanking right now so that he learns that when mom and dad talk, it means something. Sin hurts my heart. There's an instant connection between sin and pain. But you don't do that with 12-year-old Johnny. With 12-year-old Johnny, you're explaining. You're trying to influence, right? Because you've already established your authority back there, okay? There's an appropriate relationship when you're two. It's a, it's a swift spanking a, 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 and then a gentle conversation after the spanking is done, why sin hurts your heart, why the Bible says daddy has to spank your bum to make you remind you know, that sin hurts. Uh, and then when he's 12, if dad's still trying to spank a 12-year-old who's as tall as him, well, that's going to look like a joke. And, and again, it's a great way to make sure authority runs away from you. So when children are very small, I'd say authority looks like just factual, <laughs> okay? Uh, and you can explain it later, but you don't try to reason with a two-year-old when they're disobeying. That happens in the teenage years when you can't spank them anymore, but now you're trying to help them through conversation continue to understand these bigger concepts better. Um, and so I would rec- we read that book when our kids were little, and I've read it a few times since, it's, and it's terrific, because who's ever seen that? Sin is cute when we're little, ha, 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 cute little Johnny, ha, ha. And now when he's a teenager, now the parents are grasping. And the more they grab, the more that kid goes from home. He's off on his motorbike and he's, he's gone. Okay? That's what's going to happen. Okay? So authority slowly moves to influence. And that's as it should be, rather than the opposite. Okay? So parents, your two-year-old sin is not cute just because they are. Sin needs to be dealt with at all ages, even when their cheeks are warm and they're fast asleep. Anything else on this? If you're like me, and I'm curious, I'd like an opinion here. I'd like some feedback. I've never found feminism or what our culture does with sex, I've never found it appealing, ever. I've always thought it was a lie. But I couldn't quite put my finger on why. And through the help of, well, sermons and pastors and understanding my Bible better, hopefully. I've started to see a biblical vision for gender and sexuality and family kind of across the board. And what I've found, some of these guys that would talk about this, it's so countercultural, and it's so almost like you grit your teeth when you hear John Piper or Doug Wilson say something. It's like, ooh, he's going to get in trouble. But it's so common sense. Right? Everybody knows, and I can only say from a boy standpoint, deep down in your boy heart, you know this is absolutely true. And now I finally find someone with the courage to say it. Okay, so I'm allowed to think these thoughts. I'm allowed to think like a boy. This is, this is great. <laughs> okay? uh, and finding people with a backbone to say it just like it is, despite the sensitivities of people, for me has been refreshing. But I'm curious if that makes me weird, uh, 
does some of this stuff as opposite and it's completely 90 degrees as it cuts to our culture. Does it, when someone says it out loud, does it seem obvious? Seem like, yeah, of course this is true? Or does it seem bizarre because we haven't lived in that world? And there's no right or wrong answer here. I'm genuinely curious how this lands with people or how it resonates. Never in here, Tina? Okay. Uh, because if you're a teenager or for you younger guys, this isn't us being nostalgic for the 80s. Because <laughs> the 80s led to the 90s and the 90s led to this. So see, there was obviously something deeply wrong in the 80s, and there was. I mentioned all the sitcoms. We were already being catechized, right? Oh, oh, Michael Seaton is taking charge of his family. Ha, 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 right? In, Yep. He was a Reagan conservative. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
While the high-powered woman practices her law career. Yep. Well, even the last family-friendly show that I can think of was Home Improvement. All the wisdom was with mom. Dad was a bumbling oaf, and mom always pulled it together by the end of every episode. She had the wisdom. Yep. Yep. Hey, you take that back about Al Bundy. He was a great man. Fix him. Yeah, he's a project. Girls, don't marry projects. <laughs> Important. Don't marry a little bird who you're going to fix. <laughs> Dave. And it, and it is lies. Like that lie, believe in yourself and you can accomplish anything, is so obviously a lie from the pit. People are gifted differently, right? Oh, you know, believe in yourself and, and then there's this 10,000-hour rule. You can become an expert at anything if you put 10,000 hours into it. Okay, you know what? Come watch me when I was practicing Sunday night glory at the Landmark Arena. <laughs> I could spend 10,000 hours on hockey and I will never make the Jets practice roster. I won't. It's, just, it's not there. I can't do anything I set my mind to. Okay? I, that's just reality. But the, that we tell people these lies, well, you can do anything you set your mind to, is just factually false. It's a lie. And I want to go back to one thing that Tina mentioned here. Uh, and this is a subtle shift that maybe some of you have noticed very much. You mentioned Barbie. Okay? Girls have always played with dolls. But what were dolls always? Babies. Wow. All of a sudden, there's this hypersexualized woman with a beyond perfect body for little girls to play with. That's an interesting shift. Okay? Playing Barbies is not playing dolls. Traditionally, playing dolls is practicing for motherhood. Playing Barbies is practicing for cheap sex. Right? Because the first thing about Barbie is her long legs and her ample breasts, okay? That's not playing dolls. That's disgracing femininity, <laughs> okay? Raggedy Ann is playing with dolls. Little girls learning to nurture their babies is playing with dolls. That's practicing femininity. Barbie is only possible because of the sexual revolution. Imagine trying to explain Barbie to your grandma. It would make no sense. 
That's not a doll, it's a woman, and it's not even a real woman, right? Anything else? You'll notice if you're listening carefully, I very carefully dodged that in the message this morning. (laughs) Artful, graceful, I would even say. Um, Okay, so 1 Corinthians about a woman covering her head. Why don't we we go there? Because this is actually an important exegetical thing. Go to 1 Corinthians, I'm going to say 10 or 11. 11? Okay. Okay, and I'm going to do this again later on in the morning for people who aren't here, but I'm going to ask you to do this for right now. Close your eyes and do a thought experiment with me, okay? Think carefully about this. When you get confronted with an idea or a question about gender or about sexuality or about cultural practices, you're going to have a gut reaction answer. And I'm just going to ask you to stop and think where that gut reaction answer comes from. Is it informed by the Word of God? Okay? Or is it informed by your culture? There's a few things like this. Okay? So let's just think about that before we get into this text, because this is a difficult text, to be sure. And let's get into it. Chapter 11, starting in verse 2. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man." That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Okay, now we've gone from weird to super weird. Right? Oh, you guys should know this because of the angels. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> Are you guys not paying attention? Because of the angels. Okay. Nevertheless, in the Lord, a woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so now man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. And really, that requires no explanation. Obvious, right? Let's keep driving on. Okay. Because of the angels, her hair is her covering, but kind of if you look closely at verse 6, her hair's not her covering because it says if she's uncovered, then she should shave her head. 
But if her hair is her covering, then she's already got no covering, so it would make sense for her to already do something she is already doing. Appropriate. Men should take their hats off when they pray. Yeah, I, and that is biblical. I agree. And I would also say a woman's head covering is biblical and cross-cultural. So why don't we practice it here? I think we do. Um, okay, uh, and I'm going to get myself probably in lots of trouble, so I trust on your graciousness here. Okay, here's what I think is happening. Here's what I think is happening, and I'll give the counter-arguments for the sake of fairness. Okay? To me, history is a big deal. And, and you know by now, I am very anti-revolutionary. I hate revolution. I hate destroying the ancient landmarks. I hate destroying the accumulative wisdom of the ages. I, re- I detest it from the pit of my stomach. Why would we think we're smarter than everyone else who's ever lived? The strongest argument to me in favor of a continued head covering that's not hair is the fact that until 1900, all Christians practiced it. That's something. Eastern Orthodox women in Russia and the Ukraine practiced it. Roman Catholic women in Italy and Spain and Ireland practiced it. Mennonite women in Switzerland and the Netherlands practiced it. Reformed women practiced it. Presbyterian women practiced it. Anglican women practiced it. It is interesting to me that everyone understood it to be an actual covering until about 100 150 years ago. That's something. Okay, that is something. So I'm not a person at all who is reflexively opposed to a woman's head covering in church. Because this is something kind of everybody did agree on at one point in history. And to me, that is something significant. So if we're not going to do it, we better have good exegetical reasons. I think there are sound exegetical reasons, but I'd say it this way. Uh, and I hope you can track with me this far. If people are going to see an inconsistency that we don't practice head covering nowadays, um, so we'll say that's cultural, but female church elders is a timeless principle. If there is an actual contradiction there, I don't think there is. Hear me clearly. I don't think there is. But if there is, I would far rather resolve it by women practicing head covering again (laughs) than by having women church elders, okay? That's clearly not the way to resolve any apparent contradiction. If there is a contradiction, let's practice head covering again, okay? Uh, So if we're going to resolve an issue, I would resolve it in favor of being scrupulous about obedience rather than being casual about disobedience, okay? Are we together on that so far? Does that make sense? Even if you disagree with me? Okay. If there's a contradiction, we should have women with hats again and not women church elders. Okay. So far, so good? Okay. Can we also see in verse 6, it's probably a covering other than hair? Right? Because she says if she's not wearing a covering, she should shave her head. But if her hair is her covering, she's already shaved her head. Okay. So... It sounds like it's something, a piece of cloth or a hat or something, okay? But by the end, it says that her hair is her covering. So what's happening here? Well, what's the context in which the women should cover their heads with what is seemingly a physical 
cloth or fabric or something. Okay? It is in the context, and let's keep looking here while we won't do a whole thing, but it's in the context, if you follow the argument from chapter 12 all the way through 14, there's a discussion on spiritual gifts that also, historically, all Christians till 1906 in Los Angeles of all cities uh, and the Azusa Street Revival, all Christians were agreed that tongues, healings, and prophecies had ceased. Okay? This is just Christian doctrine 101. Okay? The charismatic movement is ahistorical, to say the least. Okay? So historically, Christians have agreed tongue speaking, prophecy, and miraculous healings have ceased. Okay? Not as in people can't be miraculously healed, but as in Peter's not walking around touching people. Okay? If Benny Hinn was the real deal, why does he charge admission to arenas rather than just go to the children's hospital and clean it out? Okay? Benny Hinn is a scam. Benny Hinn hates God. I can say that fairly confidently. Okay? These hucksters hate God. Uh, the charismatic movement is ahistorical. Okay? We have charismatic brothers and sisters in Christ, but their doctrine is ahistorical. However, was there a time in the church at which tongues, healings, and prophecies were happening? Yeah? Are we agreed? Was it happening when Paul wrote this letter to the first Corinthians? Yes, it was. Okay? Which is why there's instructions on how to handle tongue speaking and, and so forth in church and weighing prophecies. Okay? And so that is the setting in which women are instructed in chapter 13 to be silent in the church, that they ought not to speak. Okay, well, here's another thing that we don't practice strictly. Um, are women allowed to raise their hands and discuss in our Sunday school discussion? Yeah? Are we sinning? No. Are women visiting after church? Yeah. Are we sinning? No, we're not. So what does it mean that women are to be silent in the churches? Well, it's in this context. <laughs> in this context, we don't have Scripture yet. We have apostles preaching to and fro and and leaving books behind uh, in the infancy of the church doing these things and we have to sort this out Uh, and in in that context women ought to be silent as men lead the church and I think the same thing is happening here because um, if a woman prays or prophesies with her head uncovered that to me starts to shift the argument that way do we have women prophesying anywhere today never. The gift is it's, it's gone. We're not in the early church. We have scripture now. We don't have prophets in the church. Okay? Uh, and so I think this is one sustained argument from earlier on through to the end of 14 uh, about a special time in church history that's no longer normative. It's no longer operative. We're living in a different era since the closing of the canon of scripture. Uh, and so I would say uh, that this is there's something happening here when these women are prophesying that doesn't happen normally. Because you get to the end of the argument in chapter 13, and let's go there. <clears throat> I think it's in 13, maybe 14. 13's the love chapter. 13, okay, verse 34. Okay, there we go. Okay, so again, the same sustained argument. Verse 33, for God is not a God of confusion but is of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. 
for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Okay, again, was it shameful that this question came from a woman? We all heard Lisa's voice. Was Lisa sinning? Lisa was not sinning. Okay, Lisa was not sinning by asking the question. Okay, the women are not uh, sinning when they speak in church. But there is still a principle undergirding all of this, whether it's the head covering, whether it's the speaking in church. Who's leading the church? Men. Men are leading. And so even if you're at this bizarre period in history where you saw Pentecost, even then men are to lead. Okay? And so by the end, I think we have the timeless principle on the head covering towards the end of this. Okay? Is it proper for a wife to pray with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. So I'd say that the timeless principle here is cultural, uh, appropriate forms that clearly communicate, and this can vary from time to time. No one would say that a Scottish man is effeminate if he's wearing a kilt. Okay, but we don't wear dresses in our culture. Okay, so this can vary. But a woman's hair is a big deal. And I, that I will say, a woman's hair is a big deal. A woman's hair is communicate. It's like her eyes. It's a, it's a window into her soul. You're seeing something, okay? Uh, which is why there's memes and we joke about women with pink and purple hair. That's actually real. Okay? Women with pink and purple hair are denying their creator with the way they're doing their hair. Women with a brush cut, just ask, what kind of pain or confusion is in your life? They're communicating something with their hair. Watch a movie. Something traumatic happens to a woman. What does she do? She goes into some seedy gas station bathroom and cuts her hair. That's real. That's real. That woman is going through an identity crisis. That's why, she, that's why there's this powerful bathroom scene with her cutting her hair. That stuff is real. Okay, women, your hair is a big deal. Don't wear it like a man. Okay, is there an appropriate one haircut, one length of hair? No, there's not. But we do know that your hair is your glory. It's given to you for a covering. Your hair is a big deal. Your hair is preaching a sermon. Okay, and men, same, same here. Are we communicating with the way we do our hair, the way we dress, uh, that we are affirming masculinity? Part of the reason I have a beard is because I can't grow hair on my head anymore. Uh, but part of it is I. <laughs> part of it is I agree with Charles Spurgeon. It's the most natural and godly thing a man can do is grow his beard out. Okay, you're showing society that you value masculinity. Okay, well I can't grow a beard. Does that mean I'm effeminate? No, it doesn't. Show your masculinity in other ways. Okay, um, but for men to dress, wear their hair effeminately, and for girls to dress and wear their hair masculinely is communicating something sick, okay? The inspired apostle says, your woman is given to you for a covering and it shows authority, okay? This is why it's appropriate for women to have long hair and men not to have effeminate locks because of the angels. What's that all about, okay? Vern.
Okay. Ja. Ja. That moves us into another question, whether we should artistically depict Jesus. Hint, I don't think so. Okay. Um, but it doesn't surprise me that we depict Jesus effeminately when we do it. It doesn't surprise me. Uh, and there's reasons for that. And again, may he have had long hair? Well, yeah, because he didn't have a $70 wall clipper like I do, where you can just say it's not worth it anymore, so I'm 10 minutes I can do my own haircut. So we have to allow here for the fact that cultures communicate things differently. Notice there's not a set length, right? But relative to one another, men and women clearly differentiate themselves with dress, with hair, with customs, okay? Uh, And there's not a right way to do it. Are Americans right for saluting this way, or are the British right for saluting this way? They're communicating the same thing different, okay? A Scottish man wears a kilt to show his masculinity. Uh, Here, Harry Styles is showing he's a flamer, basically, right? When he wears a dress, he's effeminate, okay? Um, So there's not a way to do this. Another example, in our culture, it's good manners to finish your plate because you're showing your hostess that you like what she put on your plate. In Eastern Europe, it's poor manners to finish your plate because you're telling the hostess she didn't give you enough food, okay? Two different cultural expressions of honor to a woman who has fed you, okay? I make a point, because I think this is important in our culture, I always walk, well, I shouldn't say always, because I'm sure sometimes I'm not thinking about it. When I think of it, I make a point of walking behind Tanya, because I think that shows deference and respect to a woman. In some cultures, it's deference and respect to a woman to walk in front of her, because you're the barrier protecting her from what lies ahead. In our culture, we walk behind a woman to show deference to her gentleness, right? We're, We're letting her go first, ladies first. So there's culturally, this isn't a one-size-fits-all in terms of the cultural form it takes, but every culture must find forms that honor masculinity and femininity. So if Jesus has shoulder-length hair, that that bothers me nothing. Jesus was not effeminate, right? And we know from Isaiah, he wasn't even particularly good-looking. And in our art, he looks like a Maybelline model, right? He's always got the rosy cheeks and his skin is perfect. We know for sure from Isaiah he didn't look handsome. He was rough, right? Probably five foot eight, calloused hands. He was not soft. Um, So I'm less worried about the cultural expression than saying, in your culture, whether you're in Gaul in the 11th century, whether you're in the Holy Roman Empire in the 9th century, or whether you're today, how are you displaying your masculinity? Are you finding culturally appropriate norms of communicating that Vern Peters enjoys being a man and that Lori Peters enjoys being a woman? And I would say, looking at you, you have both found a way to do that. Okay? Mullets were not effeminate. They were awesome. But... (laughs) Okay, okay. Especially when coupled with the mustache. There was a hand over here. You should, yeah, that would, yeah. If the context is still happening, then yes, then women should cover their heads when they're prophesying or offering public prayers. Yep. Yep. I I think so. Okay. Yes. Okay. Because of the angels, what does that mean? Okay. 
and here's where I sometimes stress, you should read your Bible so vigorously that when you get to stuff like this, you say, yes, of course, that makes sense. Right? The angel touched Joseph on the hip, and that's why people don't eat ham to this day. Oh, yeah, of course, that's obvious. That's how well you should know your Bible. He touched him on the hip, okay, the ham is out. In the Jewish conception, the Hebrew conception, that's just obvious. This meant something to these people. They were so acquainted with their scriptures that when Paul says, because of the angels, oh, yeah, of course, that, that, makes, that makes total sense. And I'm guessing we don't live in that world. So what does because of the angels mean? Here's what I think it means. And I will tip my hat to the Scottish Presbyterian Patrick Fairbairn who offered what I think is the best explanation I've read to date. Is the angels fell. Okay? A third of them. A third of the angels are fallen. Okay? When did the woman fall in the garden? When she disobeyed orders, okay? When she took leadership instead of submission, okay? Women fell because they refused to respect proper authority, and the man refused to accept proper authority as well. And the fact that there are angels who have fallen and some who have not means that some have respected the authority of God and some have not, okay? Some angels also said, hath God indeed said, Okay? That's Satan's first lie. That's the first sin, is hath God indeed said. Okay? It's questioning the authority of God and trusting your own instincts more than the word of God. So the fact that there are angels who are submitted to God and there are angels who are not submitted to God is a reminder to women of what happens when you neglect your nature. Okay? When you deny the God-ordained bounds that God has put around gender. So women, if you think you can operate like a man, remember the angels. How did that work out for them when they also refused to obey God? It's a big deal. There's angels destined for the lake of fire because they trusted themselves more than the word of God. You ladies ought to remember that. Okay? Remember that. I think that's what that means. I could be wrong, and if I'm wrong, I am in very good company with a host of Puritans, and we will laugh about it together in heaven. But I think that is what that means. That's right. Whatever your culture, this needs to be practiced. Women need to come femininely to worship, and men need to come masculinely. Say that again. The exact way it looks, yes. But right now I'm looking at Kara and I'm seeing her head covering. She's doing her hair like a woman. Also, she took your name. Also, she's wearing a wedding ring. She has multiple signs of authority on her right now. She's obeying this. Her hair is her covering. And she has other signs of authority in addition to her hair, which is decorating her for glory. 
I, I think she's obeying, in my understanding. That's, I know this is a text that doesn't often get dealt with. I may well be wrong on some of these points, but I'm curious if that, and let's go all the way back to Lisa. Does that help move us towards an answer, or is that just adding more confusion? Yeah, and, and the short answer is, I don't think this is a command we can even obey today. Any more than we can obey the command to bring Paul his parchments. I, I, I don't think we... That part of it. The timeless principle that's undergirding it, we must obey at all times, in all cultures. Marina, and then we should close it. Oh, yes. Yep. Yep. So you can hear your pastor say, guys, don't be gay. Okay? Don't, don't look gay. You have that from your pastor. Quit being gay. Okay? Uh, don't be effeminate. Now, is there one male haircut? No, there's not. But men must communicate with their hair that they are masculine. And they must do it with their dress, and they must do it with their posture. Okay? Men are, if not sinning, borderline sinning when they're... Be a man. You stand upright. Your shoulders are out. You're assertive. You're looking people in the eye. You're talking respectfully, talking with purpose. Be a man. Correct. Okay, I think I understand what you're saying. If culture's accepting it, then these forms change, and so there is no way to obey it. Is that kind of what's behind your... Okay, I think here's the difference. A guy that's wearing French braids is not trying to communicate his masculinity. The 1970s NHL guys that had a mustache and a mullet were. Okay? It's not just about taking out a ruler and seeing how long the hair is. It's what are you communicating. A man bun is communicating that at the very minimum, I won't respect you. Okay? It's effeminate. Okay? Um, but that doesn't mean, again, it's not about and we frequently do this. We want to turn principles into simple rules. It would be easy to take out the ruler and say how long a girl's dress has to be, how long a boy's hair is allowed to be. It, wisdom requires more than just rules. What are you communicating? Please explain to me what's happening in your heart when you do this. Okay? What's happening in your heart? And then it frees us from legalism, but it also helps us to see that what we're communicating is actually more important, not less important than what we thought. It's actually a bigger deal to communicate masculinity and femininity with your dress and your hair and so forth. Okay. I should stop there. Have we made everybody angry? Okay. This is actually a blessing to be in a church community that I'm actually not scared to duck for cover here. Because there was many illegal thoughts that came out today. But I trust that they are at least biblical or helping us to get into the Bible. Let's close in prayer and then it's coffee time.
Father God, you are good, and you have uh, given us much to obey, and we have found many ways to disobey you, uh, or to be indifferent, or to disregard, or treat off as irrelevant. Lord, I pray that you would give us wisdom uh, on these issues, on the way we are communicating the glory of gender uh, in our culture, uh, and finding creative ways to communicate that it is good to be a man, and also that it is good to be a woman. Lord, help us not to just accept that, but to glory in it and to bring you praise for the way you have differentiated creation. Lord, I pray for every man, young or old, for the young boys and for every girl in this room. Lord, I pray that we would glory in the gender that you have given us uh, and that we would find ways that clearly communicate that joy uh, in a way that makes sense to those around us and is unashamed. Thank you for this discussion, even on these difficult texts. Lord, I pray that Uh, Whatever is true and honorable, you would press into our hearts, and whatever is misleading or in error, uh, Lord, I pray that you would remove that from us and, and that we would find ways to obey and honor your word. Amen.